What it said to me was, if the data science community worked more closely with the data management community, I think we can, you know, let's stamp out wrangling or, or at least munging. Let's stamp out munging at least in our lifetime, since so many of those issues that people spend time on could be solved in the data management side of the house. They may even have that data. I don't know how many times I learned that at DNB, even at DNB, where people were just like kind of starting over looking yeah. at something. It's like, you know, there's an existing list somewhere. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an avid business evangelist and original thinker who continually shares his passion for helping organizations navigate the wave of the big data revolution by expounding on the strategic value of master data. His methods of communication knows no bounds and has spread the gospel of digital transformation through public speaking engagements, blogs, videos, white papers, podcasts, puppet shows, cartoons, and all forms of verbal and written communication. Who knows, maybe after this meeting, we're going to come together and drop that master data machine learning mixtape. He's a firm believer in making your data do the work and has educated and enlightened countless business executives who care more about the strategic why rather than the technical how to the value of proper data management. Over the last two decades, he's been solving master data challenges with large global enterprises and has an unwavering commitment to establishing lasting partnerships with enterprises and innovative data brands that want to change the nature of data management. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Telling Your Data Story, Scott Taylor, The Data Whisperer. Scott, what an intro. Man. Pretty, thank you so much. That was thrilling. Go on. Oh, I stop. Yeah. Really? I love it. <laughs> man, thank good you. Day. I brought my Hapreet rig. I got my my... I emulate your 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 setup here, so I got my fancy. Mic. Like Does that. this work? That works. Yeah, just covering your entire face. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and right on, dude. Well, good to good to have you back. If anybody had deja vu while listening to that introduction, it's because I read it before when Scott was on the show, and that was around probably April or May 2020 that we dropped. Yeah, it was that. last year in the midst of it all. Yeah, man. And you've come up with a book since then, which I'm super yeah. excited to talk about. I learned a lot about that book. Before we get into the book and learning about the book, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the man on the cover of it. On the cover. Yeah, man. Scott That's Taylor. Me. So you're in New York now, but where'd you, where'd you grow up? What was it like there? I'm in Connecticut, actually. I'm in Connecticut. Connecticut? Oh, Close right enough away. to New York, but, you know, we're just a little bit away. About an Americans hour from New York. Geography. You know I grew up, I was born in Hollywood. Hollywood, California, and lived in Los Angeles, Chicago, 
New York, went to school at Berkeley, lived a few years in San Francisco, came back, started in a family in Brooklyn, then moved to Connecticut, where I've been for 26 years. I love it here. Wonderful. I never realized how similar our stories were. I did not know you grew up in like like Hollywood and, and were from there. And LA, yeah. So I've got like enough California in me to like round out the edges, but yeah. I started living in New York when I was 10. Okay. So I got enough of that in there too. I feel like I have a nice mix. I'm happy with me. I don't know yeah, about everybody yeah. else, but I'm happy with me. I'm and, exceptionally uh, delighted with you. My family was in the media business. For a while, they were in the music business, entertainment. So I got exposed to all kinds of exciting, wonderful, really unique stuff growing up that has kind of informed my perspective. I went to the United Nations school. So I have like a really broad spectrum of friends and who I still hang out with, many of them. But United really, Nations school, like what? what I really feel like I was fortunate to have such a kind of not check, but varied upbringing. Cause I yeah. was exposed to so many different things, so many different people. And again, the UN school, it was a school for primarily for diplomats, children or people who worked at the UN. My dad at the time was married to a woman whose mother's husband also worked at the UN. So when they got married, her two kids were going to the UN school. He had two kids. We went there too. And it was really a unique experience. But did you actually grow up with like the kids of diplomats and things like that? Yeah. Kids of diplomats and folks who worked at the UN. So, so you know, I had security everywhere when you're in school. Like Not so really. No. Cause the school was, this was again, this was like in the seventies too. So to date myself. So it wasn't like hyper and it wasn't on everybody thought, Oh, do you, go to school at the UN building. No, we had, we were literally in a refrigerator, five-story refrigerator warehouse that they had refurbished to this kind of learning experience, but we we're still kids. So it went, you know, it was junior high school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, ninth and 10th. Then I moved to Connecticut with my family and I finished off high school in, in Connecticut. But that experience just really, I still talk, you know, so I have friends named Michael, but I have friends named Mohammed and Walid and Sushrit and, you know, I mean, all kinds of Kimi, Kazumi. We had all kinds of folks from literally all over the world. And I think it gave me, an, you know, a comfort level and understanding and a respect for global opinions. And I, you know, it's the kind of thing that you don't realize till later as an adult, how much and how valuable that type of experience could be. Oh, especially now in the digital age that we have, lockdown pandemic, you can't go anywhere. So you are everywhere. That's it. Yeah. All these other different, <laughs> different cultures and stuff. Right. So, I mean, data world's like that as well. So it's a huge, diverse community we have here. And that's awesome. That's always kind of been a part of your, your upbringing there. So we went back to California after high school, after that experience, went back to California, studied history at UC Berkeley, if I remember that. Yeah. How, how did you go get into data? Like that's what's history that? and a lot of dramatic arts. So, you know, hence my position on the cover, I'm on stage on that book, just kind of like, you know, emoting and I love being in, you know, I love all of that still drawing that training, that experience literally every day. I moved back to New York. My father had a project that he wanted me to work on. We worked on that, came back to New York and then just started selling advertising space for him. He had a magazine company as well as a field marketing company. So we did a lot of like promotional work, literally at spring break in Florida, which was its own set of craziness and selling advertising space. So then eventually he sat me down. He's like, son, where I want you to go as a dad, I know I can't bring you as a boss, which was a lovely way 
of framing it. And it was the story I told everybody in my interviews after that, because they're like, why aren't you still working for your father? Because he said, there's like, oh, that's lovely. You know, his company was small and he knew that I could do other stuff. It was kind of time to go. So I started selling ad space and I sold the first job I got was for this trade magazine that went to supermarkets called Progressive Grocer Magazine. It had been around for like 80 years. I sold up a storm that was really good, like line sales guy, super creative, really intense, really persistent. And I brought, I brought even to that magazine that had been established forever, a new way to talk about it in a very kind of dramatic, impactful way. But there was a side of the business that was a data business. So they had a circulation, you know, they had, they had a magazine and this trade magazine went to every supermarket in the country and they had a list of every supermarket. So they turned that into a database. And even though I wasn't there at the time, in 1969, that predates me there, there were two magazines on earth that had computerized circulation. One was Time Magazine and the other one was Progressive Grocer Magazine. So that's how forward thinking they were. This database was of every store, every supermarket in the country. So I left Progressive Grocer, classic situation where you like blow through your quota, then they raise it 30%, then you blow through it, then they raise it again. It's like enough already. I'm not you know, going to be public. I'm not going to raise here. I'm not going to move up the ranks. I had a couple of jobs at a couple of different in-store media startups, which is a whole different story. People put signs on shopping carts and in supermarkets. I was always in the consumer packaged goods and retailing world. The data portion of that company split off from the publishing side and the CFO of the magazine took that data business and sold it to a large con data conglomerate called VNU, which eventually became Nielsen. And he knew me as a great salesperson. I was like, he reached out to me. He's like, you want to come and do this? I'm like, yeah. You know, I was getting tired of this. I, was, I went to all these startups. I went to three start, four startups in a row and none of them really hit. So it was like, you know, everybody was like startup and you get options and never, you know, for the one that hits, there's like a thousand that never make it. And this was interesting. I knew nothing about data. I came in and that's where I learned the data business. And uh, it was another storytelling. You know, that's kind of the through line throughout my whole story is storytelling. The first day at this company, they, one of the sales managers came in and said, we want to take you through the pitch. And she had a book that was literally this thick with all these Sheet protector slides. That's how we used to do it in the day. You didn't have projectors. You didn't have PowerPoint. You had, you know, a slide you printed out and you took people through. And before she even put it down on the table, I thought to myself, okay, this is already too long. This is no wonder they're not selling much. I mean, this whole this business was kind of moving along. So I got rid of about 90% of that. And I found a very different, very accessible way to talk about this data business and began to to talk to clients who were using our data for things that we weren't necessarily talking about. And they found it really, really valuable. In this, this data was a database of every store in the country. It had a unique code, it had hierarchy structure, it had a category like a trade channel. You know, is it a supermarket? Is it a mass merchandiser? Is it a convenience store? It had geographies, stores are in different markets, Nielsen markets, media markets, sales markets. Syndicate ADIs, BDI, what they used to call them. I forgot all the market names they used to have. And this was really foundational basic data. And then it had like another hundred attributes about every store. But people were really focused on and getting a lot of value about this from this unique code. And we did matching where we would take our data and match it to somebody else's data. And then they would get the hierarchy, they would get this enrichment. 
And that was the core business. So I took that business and I repositioned, I rebranded the business and it just took off. It became a marketing story because we were selling the same stuff that we were selling for 30 years, you know, 27 of which were, you know, had occurred before I even got there. But we twisted, we repositioned it. We called it a universal language of stores and accounts. We had this unique number. I branded it as a TD Links code. The company was called TD Trade Dimension. So it became Links. We had this great marketing that we did. We really pushed it as a premium branded ingredient. So our data was in other people's data. And we built a network of folks who communicated off of this same code number. Okay, so unique ID. We were shipping data on disks. We were sending it on tape, but the notion of being able to seamlessly communicate and interoperate with other parties exists today as a really powerful idea. And I didn't even realize how kind of pioneering we were in a really small sense. Yeah. I mean, if you distill away just like all the the technical parts of it, it's still in essence the same thing. Right, trying to get that eight eight as you described them, which we'll talk right. about later. But the four C's I talk about: yeah. code, company, category, country. I wish I had come up with that twenty years ago yeah. when I was doing this, because it's even a simpler way. But that's how I got started in the data business: selling data, understanding data. I had some experience in market research, which is also data. That was, so, what, what year are we talking about here? Eighty, like five, six, seven. So, no, nine. Sorry, no, ninety-five. Sorry, ninety-five. Oh, it was a progressive right. grocer in eighty-five, and then. TD Links was like a 95, 96, 97. So when we talk about databases, it's just like clean, structured, relational databases like we're talking about now or were things a lot more crazy back then? It was, I mean, we were, these were very structured, highly structured. There were 30,000 rows in this database. Mm -hmm. There were still companies that we had to give a computer to because they didn't have enough space. So they would run the data off of, you know, a comp little computer that we would give them. Yeah. It was hilarious. But that, that idea is still, that brand is still there, still at Nielsen. It's still part of their core offering. And it was, a, I got spoiled because it was great data. It was really pristine. It was really highly governed. It was expertly stewarded. I went to Dun & Bradstreet years later, who has the same premise. They have a database of every company. They have a unique code. They have hierarchy. They have classification. They have geography. They didn't have any, they didn't talk about it the way we talked about this other data. So I taught them to talk about it differently. But I came to DMB with a uniquely deep understanding of the core of what that business was about because I had started or repositioned a business that was very similar, much smaller scale. When I was at Nielsen, we had a 30,000 records that ended up growing to a, a million records. We covered restaurants, we covered, you know, any place that people would get consumer products and beer, wine, and liquor. And D&B had 300 million records, but the idea, the notion was this, right? The, the core idea was the same. So back then, it, it seems like maybe the, the story of data management was essentially the same as it is now, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> MDM didn't exist. So MDM as a category didn't exist. I remember, the, I remember when I heard somebody talk about their customer master, it was like, what's that? Like you're enriching our customer master. Okay, what's that? Then I would go to the next company and go, we can help you enrich your customer master. Oh, really? Good. So when I heard things and when I was a sales team, we we're a small team, two or three people, they were all awesome. We had this crack team. We had so much fun because we took this business and it literally was grew at 10 times the size. And I used to brag at, you know, internally that we were a love child at VMU because we weren't planned. Nobody bought this business and acquired it and expected it to grow the way it would grow. 
and we were really, we, we appeared much bigger than we were because we had really smart marketing. We did a lot of PR. I was doing content, but it was called, you know, writing articles back in so, those days. So that work that you're doing back then, like, like if let's, let's put it into like a modern context, like how, what would that look like in, in this day and age? Like what, what you're describing Today would be a third-party data source mm -hmm. that would provide enrichment and structuring to your internal data. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was about parties. So enrichment, enrichment and structuring, is that just kind of a way to get people to, to think about data and talk about data? Is that... Those are you know, real terms in the data management space. So when you're okay. looking at data, you know, we have a customer record. We need okay. to know more things about this customer. A lot of people do it in the consumer space. I always did it in the B2B. I never did people data, but that's a, you know, a big domain. So if you go to a Experian or Equifax or, you know, these folks who have lots and lots of consumer data or Cantar and Nielsen have lots and lots of consumer buying behavior data. And then you've got location data, which was the space I was in eventually at Nielsen, the company was called VNU. It got, it bought Nielsen. It bought AC Nielsen, the two Nielsen's. It pulled them together. It brought this new leader in, a guy named Dave Calhoun is currently running Boeing. This guy was like a world-class guy. I got his attention. He goes, I said, you gotta, you gotta learn about this great business we have. It's teeny in the scope of a $5 billion company. It's a $25 million business, but we're really having fun. And he was in Connecticut and we just hit it off. And he asked me one day something that no leader had ever asked me. It was like, you got any more ideas? I was like, do I have any more ideas? So I think this idea of structured data could apply across all the domains at Nielsen. Let me check it out. And he put me, plucked me out of the business I'd been in, which at that point was kind of running into the same problem I had before. It's like you blow through your numbers and they raise them, you blow through, you know, and administration gets heavy on a big corporate stuff. But it's always, it's, a, it's an innovation killer at many of these big companies. But he came from GE and he had this in his DNA to like, you know, their version of Imagineering, I guess. And so he just set me loose on the organization. And I started to find opportunities, tax, how to leverage taxonomy data. It productized existing hierarchy structures, reference data, master data, metadata about brands, about locations, about media properties. Nielsen tracks TV, right? They track TV ratings. They got a really good list of all the TV stations. They know every TV station. They know the code number for it. They've got a, a hierarchy of who owns it. They've got an affiliation because not all networks own their stations. They had all this highly structured, well-governed, really industrial strength reference and master data about really important entities in almost every space, right? Marketing brand taxonomies, media taxonomies. Nielsen is the world's largest counter of things. They've got, at that point, they had a music business. I went there we, and I would interview all these different data owners across Nielsen. And I had a ball, I went all over the world. So and what I got good at was figuring out what their opportunity was by figuring out very quickly what their structure was. Yeah, what so when, you're, when you're interviewing them, getting these questions, like what kind of questions are you asking them to, to help identify these opportunities? Because I, I, I always started with, okay, scope. What do you cover? Mm -hmm. Oh, we're in the music business. We've got, we track Billboard Magazine. So you heard of Billboard Magazine? It was part of the, it was part of VNU at the time. Yeah. So Billboard Magazine, what do you have? Well, we have every music, cut. We know the album it belongs to. We know the artist. We know the producing, you know, the record company. 
We know the category, right? The genre, we know the subgenre. We know its product, its movement. I don't care about the movement. I just care about the existence of a thing, identifying it with a, with a unique identity, with a unique identifier, having a hierarchy structure, having a categorization or segmentation, and having a geography, those ended up, I ended up boiling those down. Again, I didn't have this language when I was there. I wish I did, but I came to it after doing it so many times to the four C's of an entity, right? A code, a company, a category. And just because they all start with C, a country or some form of geography. That's what I would ask them. Like, what do you have? How much do you have? How broad is it? Does it cover, do you have universal coverage? That was always critical because you could have some nice anecdotal data about a bunch of stuff. But if you want to provide this to another enterprise, you've got to have coverage. When I was doing the supermarket database, we defined the supermarket universe. We had 30,000 supermarkets. That's how many supermarkets there were in the US. We partnered with the supermarket association so they would use our number. And it's like, here's our number. These guys count it. So you could walk into General Mills and Procter and & Gamble and go, we define the universe. Extremely powerful positioning. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all these other folks. So we tried to create, I had all the branding done because I like the story. I told a beautiful story about this universal language of brands, media, locations, agencies. And it was going to cover a lot of really important areas. We went to these ad agencies. So what I started to learn was the story, the original story I learned that was about stores was actually extensible to any kind of domain. And the first meeting, I remember going to a big ad agency and talking to a major media, the media department. And in my head going, okay, it's not a store. It's a TV station. It's not a retailer. It's an affiliate. It's not, and, and just translating into my mind and this guy going, that's great. That's great. You know, when can we get it? Well, this is just an idea. So I did that for about a year and a half. I basically considered that my, my PhD in this space, because even though we, we, we couldn't sell anything because we didn't have anything, we didn't have a product, but we were, this Calhoun was really great at kind of sponsoring these innovation ideas. And part of what you did is grab the spirit and just go, all right, let's go figure out if there's a there there. And then I went to Kantar and did something similar, which is a big competitor to DB. It was a couple, I mean, to Nielsen, it was a couple of years later, but they had a similar landscape. And by then I was really good. I was like, all right, what do you have? What, I mean, there were people on the phone. I'm like, I told people, look, you don't have anything. Okay. In fact, what you have is so weak, you should take, you should replace it with another division's version of that. But my record was two questions. So when you talk about questions, you know, how many questions you have, I got to the point where I could just nail somebody because I was so finely tuned on this set of questioning. There was a partner that they brought in and they wanted me to evaluate what they had and they tracked brands. I said, okay, how many brands do you track? We have 25,000 brands that we track. Break that down for me when you say brands. Like, was it just the traditional? You know, like Diet Coke. Sprite, Diet Coke, Coca-Cola, Sprite, you know, McDonald's, yeah. whatever, package, mostly packaged goods. So you think about Tide, Tide with bleach, right. you know, different variants. All and kind. For, for digital products, that could be something, let's say Uber, Uber Black, Uber Eats. Yeah, yeah, Uber same kind of card. thing. Exactly. In this case, this, this group that I was talking to, they covered packaged goods again. So it was like, we have 25,000 brands. I said, so in that, do you have any kind of hierarchy where you can take Diet Coke and Sprite and roll it up to the Coca-Cola company? And the guy said, we're working on it. And that's code for, no, we don't have it. All right. So I busted him. In, it's like in two questions, you don't have an opportunity. You didn't have any hierarchy. It's just like a flat list of brands. They weren't, people want to, 
They want hierarchy. They want categorization. That's where a lot of reporting comes from. That's where a lot of go, you know, enables. That's where a lot of targeting data integration happens at the code company category and country or market level. Reporting happens at that. You know, how many things do I have? What's the parent-child relationship? What's my penetration of a category? What's my coverage in a market or geography? These are really basic standard business questions that cannot be answered if you don't have this 4C structure on your data. Yeah, that, and that's it's challenging for me to grasp that because I've never really worked with it from that perspective. You know, and it makes complete sense. Like, yeah, obviously you want to be able to aggregate your data so you can do reports and, and whatnot. You don't want just the random values everywhere, right? You want to be able to say, okay, this free text value, maybe this maps to this particular type of code. This like incident that's coming out from, I don't know, let's just say we have a machine that's broken, spitting out error codes, and you want to take that error code and map it to something else, right? And you want to be able to to look at how a machine is performing across these different error codes. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. Like trying yeah, to yeah but that's a, that's a you know perfectly reasonable use case or, or situation where this kind of thing will rear its head. I mean, it's, you know, so now I talk about it as rows and columns, right? The things I'm talking about, people are really good at adding columns. It's really hard to align the rows. The yeah. rows are the, you know, the road is a code, right? An incident, uh, a person, a brand, uh, whatever, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the columns are what the, you know, are, are about the rows. Yeah. So when I, really like, now that I'm kind of on the flip side of it with some of the work that I'm doing at my current company, I'm very, very much realizing that data scientists, we're just, we're end users of data. Yeah. The day, that's all it is. We, yeah. we use data. Like we don't know any more. I mean, most of us don't know anything about how it's generated, how it got there, what all these, you know, everything you're talking about. We just use the thing. You help the real world get quantified so that we can use the data, right? And that part yeah, about, I'm where data starts. You're yeah. where, more where data ends up. You know, machine learning algorithm is where data ends up. Yeah. I'm on the part of like, okay, what's going to go into that? Or what's going to go into the thing that's going to go into the thing that's going to go into that? Could be a couple phases away. But I like to think of myself as where data starts. Mm-hmm. And most people in the space are where data ends up. Why is there such a disconnect between these type of, of groups? I don't know. When I started getting closer to the data science space, which, you know, meeting you, meeting Kate, Dave, you know, the folks that we all hang out with. I asked a couple questions, like I was, you know, so what's all this wrangling? I keep hearing about how data scientists spend 60 to, you know, 120% of their time wrangling, munging. What, what, what is that? Is any of that about reducing duplicates? Is any of that about kind of, you know, relationships between data entities is any you know i know there's standardization of weights and measures and all that kind of stuff but some of that it's what it said to me was if the data science community worked more closely with the data management community i think we can you know let's stamp out wrangling or or at least munging let's stamp out munging at least in our lifetime since so many of those issues that people spend time on are could be solved in the data management side of the side of the house they may even have that data i don't know how many times i learned that dnb even at dnb where people were just like kind of starting over looking at something it's like you know there's an existing list somewhere search before you create is a classic you know slogan in the master data data management space yeah i feel that could has broader application like yeah see if somebody did it already yeah i mean typically how it goes is, you know, we'll just get a CSV or whatever data dump. We just need to do stuff with it. 
but it I mean garbage in, garbage out, right? If if we had managed the data properly before it even gets to data scientists, this idea of just like munging data and doing all that work wouldn't have to happen. But it's not even the data people's fault, right? It's miscommunication with the business, right? And them not understanding the value of putting time and resources behind an effort to make sure we have good data, right? Or it's just even a disconnect in an organization where they don't realize these parties. I'm not an organizational expert. I don't claim to like solve it, but it just feels to me like there's a natural opportunity to have these groups work more closely together as the source and the user, right? As where data starts, as where data ends up to what if we reduce, you know, 20% of it. I mean, I, I, I don't know any community that talks about how more than half their time is spent not doing what their job is. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes like proudly decline. What are you then? If I spend 80% of my time doing something that I'm not calling myself, then am I really the thing that I'm not calling myself? Or am I the thing that I'm just calling? Like use some logic there. At some point you got to have, you know, the hard conversation and go, am I wasting my time? Am I doing my job? Is there a better way to do this? Or am I just going to live and with this idea that, oh yeah, 60% of my time spent doing stuff that I don't want to do. And for some data scientists, such as the person speaking to the microphone right now, we are the first data scientist in organization hires, and maybe we do some machine learning type stuff and they like it. And now they're like, oh, great. Tame all of our data. Give us a data strategy. <laughs> and it's tough. I mean, that's where books like yours come in handy and, you know, a number of other books. But if you were to put yourself inside the shoes of a data scientist in a situation like me, how would you go about doing this? What would be the, the first thing you do to help your organization start on a path to creating a data strategy? I mean, is it your, I was just going to play with this here. It, is it a data strategy or is it what we should be doing with data science capabilities? This is, is it, is it something where, okay, the whole company is going to get behind this because it enables the intentions of the enterprise or is it this work you're doing is great. We've seen it in a Petri dish and a POC. How do we roll this out? Yeah, it's the and what's your strategy to roll it out? That's true. But when I hear data strategy as a headline, that's a that's a big meaty topic and it must align with the business. So there's one answer. Another, you know, another answer is also to okay, we're gonna take this capability, we show it how work. What are the problems in the organization? You don't do it the other way around. It's like, where can we, you know, we we built this data science thing, call it a widget, call it whatever you want. Let's go find places to use it. I think you got to flip it around. What are the problems we have and how could data science help? Yeah. You know, are you looking at customer churn? Are you looking at targeting? Are you looking at, you know, shortening your quote to cash process? Are you operational things, building and growing the business? You know, I talk about there's three buckets of opportunity out there. Grow, improve, and protect. Those are the only three things a business does. Look for those. Yeah. I know. So yeah, it's a situation where it's like, yeah, data strategy in the sense that let's get the organization behind this thing. And it's a challenging situation for me having never done this. And that's what I really liked about your book because like the number of question marks you have in your book, I appreciated that because that makes me think, and that makes me have questions. I have a dialogue now with whatever stakeholders and management I have to help guide me along the way. Yeah, there's that whole section where it's just questions, right? It's like, find out all these. That was, I used to call that when I trained my sales force, I used that. That's where that a lot of that came from when we were going into enterprises and we had to figure out what was going on. And I used to call it, take no for an answer. You know, you can't K-N-O-W. 
the more of these things you find out, the more you're going to learn the language of that organization, the more you're going to understand where their business is trying to go and be confident that the capabilities you have will help that organization. We had a really unique set of capabilities. It was highly targeted to a very specific type of company. So we were, we had that confidence. Like not everybody says yes, but everybody needs it, <laughs> right? So that's just plain old selling. Not everybody's going to say yes. So that was really fortunate situation too, because that didn't always, everything I had in my bag throughout my career wasn't always like that. So you build a lot of confidence and you just go find it. You go find where those problems, because they're there. And I, part of the voice that came out of me from that book in that I put in the book was from talking to dozens, hundreds of data practitioners, data management leaders who had this dual emotional kind of feeling of really harsh frustration coupled with a real positive passion for what their work could do. But the frustration came from, but nobody understands me. If we could just put this data in play, if we could just do this, if they would just like stop letting the sales force key everything in, if we didn't roll out SAP without fixing the legacy data first, story after story after story after story. But invariably, you would find at least one, if not a group of really passionate people who are like, this stuff is just magic for the organization and basic, basic stuff. So some of these basic things talk about like it's just like master data management metadata management, data governance. These are things that I had trouble wrapping my head around. And I'm guessing some of the audience will as well, mm. if they're just data scientists like myself. But what do these things mean when we talk about master data, metadata, reference data? It's all, I bucket it at a really high level between data management and business intelligence, kind of at the phylum level, right? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, mm. genus, species. I'm in the hierarchies. <laughs> data management, Data governance, data stewardship, master data reference data, MDM, RDM, PIM, business intelligence, analytics, data science, data visualization, all AI, ML, all the things you do with data versus making the data. Those are the two stories I think an organization has to tell. Mm -hmm. That first bucket of data management determining the truth, heard me talk about this, versus business intelligence deriving meaning. I'm obviously on a truth team, hence the meaning of my truth hat. I need to get one of those. Those are very nice. I got, I got to open up a merch page. I'm, like, up, I'm working on my website. I'm <laughs> taking a page out of my, the rest of the Data Avengers book, right? George has got t-shirts and Kate's got swag. So I got to do that. Those techniques in data management and the difference between all of them, it's, you know, the deeper you are, the more you need to understand that difference. But I bucket it all. It's like, we don't have to quibble about whether data governance or data stewardship, you know, it's like, if you're in that space, yeah, learn it but talk about it as a bigger bucket and people will at least get where it's positioned among other very large activities in, a, in an enterprise. They're, it's all focused on making sure the data is trustworthy for the organization, fit for purpose, protected. In a way, it, that's the sous chef for the cooking that you do as a data scientist. You want the right ingredients. Are they fresh? Are they prepared correct? Can I then do my work, which is the recipe and creating the wonderful meal for the business to feel satisfied. And again, if we get any piece of that ingredient list wrong, what happens? I know you got a story that, that we're just one piece of data caused something to crumble, right? Talk to us about that. that that's a, I'll see how quickly I can tell that story because it's a pretty intense story. It was, I was working for one of these startups 
And it was a company that had a promotional sign in a supermarket. I've never told this story on tape before. So here you go. And it was really successful. We had a whole bunch of salespeople. We were rocking like crazy. They had the supermarket sign that drove sales. 31% was the average. And you would go to a company like Procter & Gamble and go and talk to the people who had Pringles or Jif peanut butter or Folgers coffee. And they're always looking for promotional activity in a store. So promotional activity, when you go to a supermarket, the signs you see, the placement of products, what's on the end, the pricing, that's, all, that's a huge, a lot of people who don't know the trade don't realize the incredible complexity and the amount of activity and the number of parties. There's nothing more complicated or active. If you've ever been in the back room of a supermarket, there's a lot going on. And making all that work for consumers is a lot. So, And then doing it at scale is an incredible amount of work. So we had this electronic sign, LED sign that we would shoot messages to stores and it would promote the product. There were a couple other companies that competed with us, but ours was a huge hit because we had such incredible sales increase. And that's where I got very deep into presenting market research. So we had a market research firm. They took scanner data, right? Sales data right from the store, beep, a match panel. We got 50 stores with the, you know, as control. We got 50 stores with the variable, which is the signage. We will take a look over time at the sales in the 50 control stores versus the 50 test stores. Multiple panels. We had three or four panels across the United States, depending on regional activity. Procter & Gamble loved this thing. We got the, the methodology was completely sound. This is classic match panel testing. We got good at presenting these results. Here's what your volume was before. Here's what your volume was during the period. Here's what your volume was after the period. Really, really detailed scanner level, UPC level, item level data. One day I'm looking at, oh, Fred, just two parts of the story. So this really good friend of mine became a really good friend of mine. He was kind of a sales admin there. And he told me that one day he was talking to the research company and late at night, he was talking kind of his equivalent there and he got some data from them and he didn't really understand it. And this guy goes, oh, oh, we forgot to add the factor. And he goes, what's that? My buddy goes, what's that? He said, oh, just the factor, 1.25, I'll take care of it. We don't even know what that means. A little while later, I get some research back and it's over four periods. And the brand that I was doing the test for was up all four periods. 27%, 35%, whatever it was, it was up in a natural distribution. I looked at it, I went to my bus, I said, something's wrong here because this third period, they weren't up. We didn't run ads there. They were seeing what happens if you take it down and put it back up again. So this was really important. He goes, oh, let me take a look. I kept the copy of the original research. I get the new one. Oh, we, it, here it is. There was a problem with whatever, blah, blah, blah. I look at the numbers. So now it's up up, down, up. I take that third period, the first version and the second version. And now I'm starting to smell something. I have, my buddy is kind of looking at it too. And we're looking at, I'll never forget this moment. I'm sitting in this little cube. I've got a, you know, a $2 calculator. I divide one into the other. I hit equal 1.25. What they had done was every, every, so it was a fraud. In case anybody's wondering, it was absolute fraud. None of us knew it, but we figured it out through these couple of pieces of information. But the genius, the evil genius in this scheme was products move at a natural 
cadence. They move in a natural proportion. There was always talk in this for some of these promotional companies that part of how you would mess with the research is you would send somebody in a store and they would buy the product in the, in the test stores. That was kind of low-level fraud. And there was always this talk about the edge of the, we didn't do that, but the you know, other company may have or like that. As like the scope of this was so huge, these brands who were generally suspicious knew we couldn't have bought that much product, right? And they would look and they would go, all right, you know, the onion flavor moved okay, but the sour cream in them, you know, so that there was a real validity in the proportion and the movement and all everything else. And all they did was put, changed one thing, the factor. Case said was when I decided that day to quit. I waited two more months to get my bonus, which was significant at that time. And as soon as that check cleared, I resigned. I took my pictures off the desk. I had already cleaned everything out. And it was like, I thought of all the people I had lied to without knowing it. I thought of all the friends I had made in the space who trusted the numbers and trusted me. Meanwhile, the company goes public and it goes from like six up to 21 in a couple of days. Then news breaks that they're questioning the contracts that the company had, the revenue projections, because if they were going to mess with the research, they actually, there wasn't a number in this company that wasn't cooked. So the big fraud was they were fudging contracts. I mean, this is really serious. The SEC was involved. There was a headline in the Wall Street Journal that had the company name. It said, from darling to pariah in six short weeks. I figured that reporter was waiting to use that headline. So this place was just right. I mean, it was very upsetting as a young sales got sleepless. It was only one of the only sleepless business nights I ever had because it was like, this is, and only a couple of us knew about, it. I'm talking about it now 25 years later, if not more so. And if, like we said, we're never going to say anything for 10 years. And it was like never 20 years. Never, I'm not naming any names here, but uh, it's an example of one thing. One thing was changed. And that just, for me, one of the many lessons was just a single factor can completely transform the outcome, you know, for good, for bad. In this case, for bad. I mean, the company went out of business. It got sued. Shareholders sued the SEC. I got, the people got subpoenaed. I, I got called in by the SEC. I had to be interviewed. I took out my pen and paper, and these two guys are sitting across the table. I took my pen and paper. They're going to interview me and whatever. And they said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to take notes. They said, no, no, we take notes. Put that away. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> No problem. My buddy, who was the guy who I told you about, he had keys to everything. They showed up at his door with guns, not like drawn, but they were like, because he, his name was on a lot of stuff. He managed the contract. He was completely unwitting. You know, we had nothing to do with it. He was just like an inadvertent bagman for these leaders of this company that just had a huge fraud. It was hilarious. And now it's hilarious. But uh, I mean, yeah, but statute limitations probably up on that. Nobody come after Scott with questions or anything about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I was you know, <laughs> guiltless. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I, I really, it was really devastating for me personally. And just thinking about all the work we did and the, you know, the truth we thought we were telling and thinking about the people who didn't buy it. There were some brand managers who were like, I don't know, this just doesn't feel right. And there were others who were like, this is fantastic. I had 10 brands at Proctor. I was soaring. This was like a huge, I had a couple of big, I had Proctor and Unilever, huge brand, you know, and we, you sell it by brand. So 
a company that has lots and lots of brands, there's all kinds of opportunity and one buys it and another one buys it. Oh, we were having a ball. It was like the group was really fun and it all came crashing down. And we thought this was going to be a big story. And then like a month later, the Mike Milken junk bond scandal broke. And it was like, they got much bigger fish to fry. Like all the focus was there, but we thought these guys who were running this company were going to go to jail. They were going to, they just kind of like fittered away, but I know it's a rather long story here for our time, yeah. but it's an example of, it's a parable of what a single piece of data can do. Yeah. It's pretty we remarkable. Think, when we think about like, when we put it into like domains and data management that we think about, like, would that be considered metadata management, match data management, data governance, like what, that type this of- This was, you know, in the, in the realm of market research, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, budging the numbers, it's screwing with the, it's changing the numbers, right? Just because they figured out a way to do it at scale and a way to do it really elegantly, but with some evil intent, clearly. And it was a group. There was a group of the research company almost went under the guy who the idea was that the research company died of a heart attack. The guy who ran the company that I'm talking about, his father invested in, he never spoke to him. I mean, this thing was just like a blow up. Yeah. yeah what a mess. So <laughs> Maybe you take this, make it a whole separate segment, but it's just, it's just, that was my earliest kind of exposure with market research is a form of data. And it was really, we had to learn all the terminology and variables and all that. It was simple stuff. So it's, yeah, I mean, I feel better. I feel like I'm making progress. I finally able to share this. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for you, man. I'm I'm happy, happy to help with that. We didn't, we didn't get to get to much of the book, but I do want to thank you for sending it to me. I really enjoyed it. Sure. Yeah. 100%. We talked about it. But you tell me if we got enough time or not. I'm happy to chat about it there too. So we begin to, to probably begin to wrap it up here. We're okay. up on an hour. So <laughs> it was not, it was great. Just uh, chatting with you, learning more about how you broke into the data world and some of the trials and tribulations. And, you know, like I'm saying, your book was helpful for me as a data scientist, having to figure out the data story for my organization. It's definitely one that I'm, having to reread and take notes from because thick skull, it didn't, it didn't sink in the first time. Now that I'm going through it, man, again, I really enjoyed it. So happy to help you through any of this. Yeah. You know, call me up, DM me, whatever. Happy to talk through any of that stuff. Yeah. Sorry, I blew all my time on my war stories here, but nah, um, come back it, again. Man. But I uh, uh, always love talking to you. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, do, let's do the random round now. Uh-oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but before, we get to, <laughs> before we get to that, question here is it's 100 years in the future what do you want to be remembered for hey I, you know i hope my family remembers me my fa- you know and i'm not looking to sort of you know change the whole world they remember me as you know giving them a laugh and teaching them something if i can that combo that kind of feedback that i get now that for me is that's the drug that keeps me going that's the buzz i get right away when somebody goes oh that was entertaining and informative that was funny and i picked something up that that's the sweet spot i kind of aim for because using that technique to get through to somebody is i think a powerful way to use that whether it's humor whether it's timing whether it's not just to be you know sort of goofy but to have it make a point and illuminate something for somebody in a way that they didn't see before. That's a, that brings me joy every day when that happens. So hey, they'll remember me for that. If it's a hundred years or hundred days from now. Well, y'all definitely can confirm that you accomplished all of that with the book. And <laughs> the first interview we did that you came on the show was a huge hit with even like my non-technical audience absolutely loved cool. hearing you. So you definitely get in the nail on the head with that one, man. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the random round here. First right. question is, 
when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will it be about? It hasn't happened yet. It'll be, about I, nine I think it'll be music in, uh, I don't know, in the next year. So I don't know what the biggest number is right now. Trillion views uh, is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of you. Right now we're at yeah. 9 billion views. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's a while. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a while. Justin Bieber's 60th birthday. I'll <laughs> be <laughs> so funny if that's actually what it is. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep an eye. Well, out. hang around. All right. So <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> so, in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? That, that I'm a, an amiable guy. They don't, they don't think I'm threatening or whatever. So they either think I'm smart or funny or a combination of both, but not a threat in any way. Do you think people That's might my think, hope. People might think that you tell lies because you were had this as a truth. So you know, I hope not. Reverse. I hope this doesn't, I hope this isn't, yeah. <laughs> there are people who go, oh, does that say Trump? Like, no, no, it's cool. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to make sure it's not red with white lettering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> Avoid that. Exactly. Your design choices. <laughs> Make data great again. It's like, no, don't you don't no. So what are you uh, currently reading? What am I reading? I'm not really reading anything. I read a lot of news. I read a lot of magazines. I read a lot of short form stuff. Mm -hmm. I like watching movies. For me, that's kind of my literature. What do you like, do, uh, watch recently? Great movies. What's what? uh, something that you watched recently? Recent Mank. I love that movie. Mank. Loved every moment of it. It's about the guy who wrote Citizen Kane. Okay. So again, another iconic must-watch movie for anybody in the in the who's interested in that kind of stuff. My son once asked me, "Okay, what makes a good movie?" And I right, I tell that story about Francis Ford Coppola in the book. Yeah, asking him. Book? Yes. What's a it was a wonderful combination of like my love for data and movies, and going to the Gartner Data and Analytics show and having him speak there and sneaking into the analytics side of the show because they didn't let the data management people in there and asking them a question after realizing that they had already seated all the questions and only clients were asking questions. I caught his eye from 10 rows back. I'm like, I know I'm next. And I taped it. And so what's in there, that was 10 years ago, if not more. And I knew he was going to call on me. So I hit my phone on record. It's like, I got to capture this. And then I was scurrying around trying to find the little, it was on a little teeny disc, one of those little micro discs. Cause in those days I didn't have an iPhone. It was like a Samsung or something. And I'm like, where is it? I can, and I couldn't find it. Cause I wanted to get the actual, I never transcribed it. And so I wrote it, I wrote it without the recording and I went back and I finally found the recording and it was the kind of like the, the basic story was there, but it was not, I hadn't written it correctly. It was like, oh, I didn't really say it that way. He didn't really say it this way. It was like a little more. And uh, so that was fun to kind of find that out. But it's a great story. It doesn't matter what you're in. It just captures people. Yeah. What about music? What do you got on repeat? I've been listening to Third Eye Blind like every day for the last three days. Like, yeah. Really which, which album? Like, like which, do, it's do, a do, compilation do, that my do. son put together, a playlist. But I listen to a pretty wide variety of stuff. Big Demi Lovato fan, big Taylor Swift fan, and also Glenn Miller, Miles Davis, opera. Yeah. Still well, haven't quite made it to country yet. I'm a huge fan of Third Eye Blind, man. Like their, their stuff growing up was my high school years. I love that stuff. Oh, there you right. go. so there's the actual random question generator. Yeah, we got a random question generator here. First question, oh. what makes you cry? What makes me cry? Like sentimental movies make me cry. 
when my kids do really, uh, these are sort of tears of joy, uh-huh. right? When my kids do really, really impressive, wonderful stuff, makes me cry. Your when about uh, to graduate from Yale, right? Did that already happen? He's he's getting his PhD at Yale, which wow. I just tell everybody. Yeah, and he just told me he's getting a article published in Molecular Ecology, which I don't have a subscription to yet, but it's going to be my new favorite magazine. <laughs> he's studying birds, ornithology, and ecology wonderful and he's really accessible he's really but i'm most proud of the fact that all my kids are funny yeah not just because they just have that having a sense of humor for me is that would losing that would be a devastation for me <laughs> really it would be like that part of my humanity i just see that as kind of a an example of kind of how people think and i really have fun sort of thinking that, okay, what's the funny thing to say? What's sort of the referential thing in that conversation to say? Is this the right time to say it? Is the time right? Is it not? Did I do it already three times? I mean, there's all that kind of stuff. But then our family gets together, you know, when they do, it's all kind of not one-upping each other, like competitive, like, you know, to put you down, but it's like, who can kind of make the comment about this thing in that way that everybody cracks up at? And then there's sort of this meta recognition of like, that worked or it's just like small word choices right using like the the same mean the a word that means the same thing but just doesn't get said quite as frequently can add that actual extra you know effect to it to make it yeah. much more potent right and i worked that one of my so my speaking stuff i like practice that i listen to it could i say it in fewer words should that word at the end be there oh i blew that i you know i messed up my own punchline yeah that's all technique that I just work on all the time. Cause this is what I'm doing for a living, right? You want to yeah. be okay. Yeah. Entertaining and informative. You got to hit the mark. You got to deliver. You got to, you know, I'm nowhere near this category, but I'm, you know, I, I looked at, okay. So how, what does Jerry Seinfeld do? What's his technique? He's actually done a bunch of stuff about like technique that he's got uh-huh. and kind of listening to it. Like, okay, there's a tip there. It's not like I'm a stand-up comedian, but I do my stuff enough where I know, okay, that's going to be a laugh line. I mean, I missed the physical live presentation because you hear it, right? You get that reaction, which is just tremendous. But I know when some of these things I say are, okay, that's, I'll put that in there because that's going to be a funny thing. I did something the other day at a bit about Oreo has this new custom Oreo site and I was using it as a form of digital transformation, really tangible product that you can order different color Oreos, you can get them printed. And then I had a shot of, I said, of course, the site has a cookie policy. Uh, and shot of that. So it's like, you know, bad pun there, but right there it was like, and, it's, and yeah. it was real cookie, right? It was digital yeah, cookie, yeah, but it was yeah. like, of course, Oreo site's got a cookie policy. Doesn't it? I like that. So little bits like that. Yeah, that's perfect. Or just even if you want to get poetic about it, right? And inspiration comes and goes. Yeah. It's really creative. I mean, the puppets are, you know, the puppets yeah. are like the discipline for me is okay. When I did that first puppet video, it was like every line, every line has to be either a setup or a punchline. Like, yeah. how do I do that? Like, cut stuff out. Like, and I had a couple sections of it that, you know, people were just like, that's not funny. That's the, that drags. You already said that. And so doing more of it, which I'm going to do, which is really fun, but I really want to get good at it. And, if I'm going to put a whole multi-part puppet, multi-episode thing together, it's got to have an arc. It's got to have characters. It's, they've got to relate to each other. They have to be whole. You know, I love Pixar. is probably the greatest storyteller out there. I took this Pixar storytelling course in, I forget what one of, what's that academy that's like Khan Academy, right? They had a story. 
Yeah. yeah. It was like, all right, cool. Awesome. Like, nice. let me check this out. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, they do, it's not a formula, but it's really structured in a way where there's things you do as a technique. And when, you know, just like anything that people are really good at that other people enjoy, the people who enjoy it think it's just kind of magic. The magic of Scott Taylor, right? But here. there's a lot of work, you know, behind whatever it is, whether, you know, whatever you're doing. So same thing with data science, right? They think yeah. you're magic, man. They were like, you got to leave this place. You guys set this strategy. You're doing stuff we never saw before. How do we change the company? This is a great, you know, hopefully you're grabbing that opportunity in some way or another. Yeah. Trying to. Yeah. yeah I mean, this right there, guys, that's the magic of Scott Taylor. Because <laughs> the question was, what makes you cry? We ended up talking about how to make you laugh. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, so. that, that's <laughs> what talent would you show off in a talent show? Oh, in a talent show. If it was a plain old talent show, bubbles. I can blow a square bubble, which is actually a bubble cube, which I should do someday to put on LinkedIn. Yes, please. And I can also blow the biggest bubbles anybody you would have ever seen. So I have a contraption called a bubble thing and it's a wand. It's gone out now. It's like a commercial toy and then kind of peaked and went away. But I saw a guy on a commercial for something else with this giant bubble blower. I'm going like this because what you do is you've got a stick and there's like some fringe and it hangs down and you open up this fringe. It's dipped in bubble soap and it op- it's this huge bubble opening and you can make, I'll show you a picture. I feel like, you know, six foot, nine foot bubbles, massive bubble. And I bought this thing. I found this guy in New York. I bought one. It's like, that sounds fun. I started doing it in front of my house in Brooklyn. So many people asked me where they could get one. Like, I'm not going to ignore consumer demand in front of my own home. So as a side hobby, I would buy these bubble things from this guy for $4. I'd sell them for 10 And I paid my rent a couple months in like sudsy $10 bills to my, to my landlord. I go, here you go. I'm like, he knows I'm, he knows I'm down. Like it was so fun. <laughs> so, I mean, you should take one of those square bubbles that you do and post a picture with a pun about OLAP cubes. That'd be about what cube? Oh, OLAP, OLAP cube. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. You help me work on that. So All we'll right. have the. Uh, it's actually a bubble cube. You've got six bubbles that attach themselves together, so mm. six sided, and then you put a straw in the middle. And you blow, and the inside of the where the intersection of all six bubbles are, it because you're blowing in there, it opens it up and creates a air pocket in the middle. That because there's six bubbles with equal pressure, it's a cube. And the only time I ever smoked cigarettes is when I was doing bubbles, because if you blow smoke in there, it, it yeah. accentuates it. But I got a friend of mine who's in, he's an actor in Hollywood. He does all kind, and he professionally blew bubbles. It was called uh, Uncle Bubbles. He wrote a little bubble book. He used to do parties and things like that. So I'm nowhere near his ilk, but for a talent show, sure, I'll do bubbles. What a job, man. (laughs) What are you interested in that most people haven't heard of? I probably went through a bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) Bubbles, arcane music. (laughs) So all Uh, all of the above, everything. I'm blanking on that one. Yeah. (laughs) What's your earliest memory? It was dark and then all of a sudden it was Started to be light, and then somebody smacked me on the butt and held me upside down. <laughs> but I was at some sort of picnic. My parents are there, and there was a, I don't know if it's the earliest memory, but it's early, very early. And there was a, a pool that had a fence around it, and they threw me over the fence to land in the pool so I could get out of the pool and like unlock. That's probably later because I could swim a little bit. But I remember that really vividly. Maybe that's like four or five years old in L.A. Which is awesome, man. Anyway, this is this guy. I feel like, you know, 
I should be paying you for this hour. <laughs> what is something you can never seem to finish? Yes, My laundry. Laundry, yes. Yeah, you don't want to see the rest of this 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 room here. It's all blank here. It's like a mess over there. My yeah, mine is a folding. I room. start a lot of things. I get an idea. I've got. 3,500 yeah. Evernote entries where I get an idea. Evernote changed my life because it was a place to put everything and then I'll get something. And then, but what I found later in life was all these little ideas that aren't totally whole could very well be part of a bigger, more cohesive thing you do later. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of thought process, which I didn't discover, I wish I had discovered that earlier became really helpful for me, when, especially when you're doing things creatively. So you think of something like, okay, a line, a bit, an idea, a concept, and it's not big. And early on, I was like, all right, that's going to be this thing. And it would never happen. It was kind of disappointing. And then I realized, oh, I've collected all this stuff. The puppet show was one of them. I had written all these, you know, goofy jokes and about, you know, data and just incorporated them all together. When I was done in Bradstreet, I pulled on a lot of sort of half ideas I had to make a point. And so I started, now I feel better about it. It's like, okay, here's an idea. Here's a thought. Here's a thing. Let me categorize it somehow being the data guy. But I know I'm going to make this work in the context of something else later. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I think you might enjoy this book. I've been, so this book's old, A Kick in the Sea of the Pants Oh, by Roger Van Eck. I think this book was published in the early 80s. But I read his other book, uh, A Whack on the Side of the Head. <laughs> it's very, very violent imagery there. Yes. But okay. it's all about, it's all about. Uh, smack in the mouth and whatever is his new book, I'm stepping on your toe. He, oh yeah. He's, he's got, he's, he's got some good, like, this is something I think you might enjoy. Kick right. the pants or Whack on the Side of the Head. It's all about what you're talking about, like getting ideas and combining them and doing interesting things with them. Yeah, I've got another book of his that I'm excited to get into. This one's all about, it's called Expect the Unexpected. So he took just essentially aphorisms from Heraclides, the ancient Greek philosopher, and then applied that to creative thinking and how to use what he's oh, seen cool. in day-to-day -day life. So if you guys start hearing me quote Heraclides on uh, LinkedIn. Did he say there's a philosopher, was that him? All entities move? Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything changes. Yeah. All entities. I used a quote from him to start yeah. a data white paper yeah. called was something about the flow. I forget what it was called. No, it was no about man. data flowing. Yeah. No and I started with his, with his, and that, and that inspired me to do my next keynote that I'll work on. Got a couple that are sort of doing now, but when I get the opportunity to sort of do a new keynote, one of the topics are the, the, classic philosopher's view of data and taking quotes like his, you know, all entities move. Well, we do yeah. entities, right? We have, you know, everything change. Okay. Data changes. There's this Chinese philosopher who talked about, and I don't have it all in front of me, but it was something around, okay, you have to discover the existence of a thing, then its purpose, then who will use it. And I go, is that data management or is that not data management? Right. Yeah. We determine that this thing exists. You know, we figured out where it's from and its value. Then we put it in the hands of folks who can use it. That's what you do with data. So I've got like six or seven of these. If you want to come together on a book, taking philosophy with data, yeah, let me know, man. I'd love to. And they're kind of, you know, and then, and then one of them was something I used to use all the time, which was, oh, I forgot her name. Anyway, we'll just keep going. I'll just <laughs> ramble on forever here. So uh, <laughs> how can people connect with you? Where could they find you online? Anytime, Scott Taylor, Data Whisperer, check, check me out on LinkedIn. You can go to my website, metamedaconsulting.com, which is under construction, but 
in about a month that should be bursting with all of my activity. So I've got somebody I'm working with on that. I'm very excited about that because it'll be a place to put like all the stuff that I've done and that I've done with people in various different ways. Yeah. Kind of show that off. But LinkedIn's the best place. You know, you, you see me there all the time. Happy to have you follow me. Go to YouTube. I got the Data Whisperer YouTube channel, 50-something videos in there, everything from the very serious to puppet shows and cartoons, as we talked about. And I just keep pumping out, pumping it out, right? We're machines here, you and me both. That whole group we hang with are just, all of us have a voice and we put it out there and I love it. I love I love chat with you and the rest of that group every day. It's really exhilarating for me. Yeah, man. I'll include all that stuff right there in the show notes and- both of us have the same birthday coming up in a few weeks here. And, oh, you do? Uh, that's right. Yeah, May 17th. May 17th, oh, man. So, so plenty of shopping you. days left for those of you out yeah. there. Well, this this, will, this, this is going to be out far, far after May 17th. But now you guys, okay. know, <laughs> now you guys know next year. Wish us that happy birthday. But yeah. Scott, thanks again for, for coming to hang out, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. you this was great as always. Thanks for, thanks for having me.